Elizabeth. It's a family name. From Elisheba, my God is an oath. The wife of my distant relative Aaron, of the priestly tribe of Levi, from the Exodus. I'm a descendant of Aaron. I'm of the priestly tribe of Levi. I'll never be a priest, of course. I'm a woman. As you can see, women are mothers. But uh, not me. I, um, I don't have children. Yeah, I wanted children, prayed for children, but it just didn't happen. <laughs> My husband is of the priestly division of Abijah, the eighth of 24 divisions. There's all these divisions of priests, and they rotate through the duties at the temple in Jerusalem, priestly duties and such. Well, one fateful day, his division is on duty at the temple. For the first and last time in his life, my husband is chosen to offer incense at the altar. Only one priest can go into the altar, only one time in his life, because there are so many priests who want to do it. Well, it was more than a little harrowing, as there had been previous priests instantly struck dead for violating God's commands about how to follow the rites properly. Legend has it that even if he dies, nobody can go in to get him because then they'll die. So we have this tradition of tying a rope to the leg of the priest, so if the Lord kills him, he can be dragged out. Anyway, anyway, it is a big deal. And Zechariah is chosen, and we're thrilled, and a little nervous, but thrilled nonetheless. So as the worshipers assemble, Zechariah goes behind this massive curtain, the curtain that separates the rest of the temple from the altar, and he begins praying. <laughs> he sees an angel standing on the table, on the right side of the table. He trembles with fear. Not the angel, Zechariah. Of course, Zechariah. Zechariah trembles with fear. The angel tells him that our prayers have been answered. We will have a son. We are to name him John. People will rejoice with us. He will be great in the sight of God. He's not to ever have fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit before birth. He will turn many people to God. And this, listen to this. He is to prepare the way for the Lord by preparing the people for the Lord. Zechariah is incredulous. How can this be, he asks the angel, because we're so old. The angel, he's Gabriel. He reveals that he is Gabriel, the Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. So he's been sent to tell my Zechariah the good news, which will certainly occur. Zechariah doesn't believe him. And because of his disbelief, my husband will be unable to speak until these things happen. Well, outside, the people are getting worried. Zechariah is taking so long. Is he dead? Should we pull him out? They don't. Zechariah comes out, but he can't say a word. He makes motions. The priests understand that he has seen a vision. Well, Zechariah rushes back to our house and tells me the good news. Or rather, writes me the good news. I immediately become pregnant. I praise the Lord for his favor. So we live in the hill country. It's a very quiet place. My pregnancy goes easily and we lead peaceful lives, content that we will have a special son. Six months speed by as if it were six days. I hear a knock on the door and I welcome the person to come in. Mary comes through the door. But she's my cousin, much younger than me, much. And 
At the sound of her voice, my baby jumps with joy. I am filled with the Holy Spirit. I begin blessing her. In my joy, I realize I'm to serve Mary, and my son is to serve the baby she will have. John is to be the one who prepares the people for the coming Messiah. He prepares the way for the coming King. Now, that phrase may not mean much to you, but it meant everything to us. In our time, the kings and emperors had complete control over their subjects' lives, life and death control. So people would do anything to please their rulers. Well, one of the few unpleasant aspects of being a wealthy and powerful ruler was traveling. Rich and poor alike had to suffer the bumps of the road, lengthy travel times, poor lodgings. If a king was known to be on his way, the people would go to great lengths to ease their travel to please the one who had control over their lives. Fill the holes in the road, straighten out curvy sections, flatten hilly parts, plant trees, plant shrubs, anything to make the travel more pleasant and easy. The coming Messiah must surely be more important than any earthly king. How will our son prepare the people? How will he prepare their minds and hearts? We're country people, not wise teachers in Jerusalem. Should we keep him at home and teach him or send him away to be taught? We struggle with those kinds of decisions and eventually decide to keep him at home. Of course, he doesn't spend much time in the house. That child loves the outdoors, and the wilder, the better. My dream of having a child was granted to me. A miracle, an oath fulfilled. Proud mother, yes none prouder than me. For the Messiah will say of my son, among those born of women, none have risen any greater than John the Baptist. Do you see what I see? Um, today we're going to talk, talk about the idea of preparing the way, and as I was thinking through some examples of what that looks like in our modern context, uh, I came up with what I think is my least favorite uh, home improvement activity, which is painting. Boy, I can't stand painting, and it's not because I'm not good at it. I'm actually kind of proficient at it because I've had to do it so much over my life, uh, but the reason is is because you don't just start painting, do you? Like, it's a, it's, a whole, it's a whole thing. In my world, because I have kids, I usually have to go find out where my paintbrushes are, number one, hopefully not in the dirt outside. My dad would have killed me. But then you got to start by cleaning the walls. You got to get the paint. You got to select the paint. You got to test spots of the color of the paint on the wall. You got to decide. Then you got to argue about it. You almost have to file for divorce, but then you come back together at the last minute and you rescue your family after you decide that she was right all along on the color of the paint. Then you have to do what? You don't just start painting, though. What do you got to do? You got to what? Tape first. Uh, a couple years ago, I decided to paint the outside of my house, um, not because I'm just super good at it, because I got the price for it, and I thought, that's outrageous. You're trying to steal from me. About halfway in, I'm like, I will pay you double. <laughs> but so that was a learning lesson. But uh, as I was painting it, one of the things I had to realize is that I would often have to take about two to three hours of just set up and prep to make sure that I had the area that I was going to paint. I was using a sprayer, no overspray, all these kind of things. And then I would have all this set up, all these hours worth of work, just for like 15 minutes worth of painting. 
But what you learn, any good painter knows, that it's the prep work that matters. Like, that's what makes it a good job. You have to prepare the way for you to be successful in the final product because we've all walked in some place and go, yeah, somebody didn't care about this job at all, you know? Just paint everywhere. It's on the floors, on the ceiling. And so preparing the way really matters. Now, in today's, uh, in today's talk, we're, we're, we're focusing on specifically Elizabeth and Zechariah, the parents of John the Baptist, and we see their story from Luke 1 is actually where it is most is recorded about them, and we learn the most from them. And something I was thinking about that's just good to know kind of as a side project here is that uh, when, you, when you look at Luke, Luke was written, most scholars agree that Luke was written around 55 to 60 A.D., you know, A.D. after, you know, after death. But really, uh, Jesus was, was, was crucified and resurrected in 30, like 33 A.D. And so I just think it's really cool to know that when we're looking at these stories, there's only like a 20 to 25-year gap between the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ to the recording of these documents. And Luke, when you read Luke 1, the first thing you find out is a letter written to a guy named Theophilus who was just, you know, wanted a written account. And Luke and Acts were written together by the same person. Luke was a doctor when he, and you kind of historian, he wrote these things. But what's really cool is that what we're focusing on today is the birth of John the Baptist and, you know, obviously Jesus is that these things only happened within about 55 to 60 years from the very article, the document that we're reading. And I think that's pretty cool because, you know, 55, 60 years ago, it's like 1965. Some of y'all remember 1965, don't you? Like, we still got cars driving around from that time. And I just think sometimes that the Bible just seems so distant to us, but the Bible is not distant from when those things happened. And that's why they are, they're reliable and we can take hope and confidence when we're reading things like Luke 1 and 2 about the birth of Jesus, that these things didn't come three, 400 years later. We're writing it as the people who saw it and experienced it were still alive. So I think that's really cool. But today we're looking at Zechariah and Elizabeth, and we don't have to sum up their whole story, but what we do find out from the video and reading their story is that Zechariah and Elizabeth were a couple who did not have any kids and were at this point in the story older in age. Now, the context of that, and it was really important for us to understand, is that in this culture, you having children as adult parents was a big deal, and certainly a status and cultural symbol of success and favor from the Lord. And that may seem kind of crazy to us. I mean, maybe not completely, because having kids is still obviously a big deal in our culture. But, you know, we meet people all the time, it's like, I don't want to have kids, and, you know, our culture's pretty fine with that. And so we've moved on a little bit from where they were. But in this culture, it was a really big deal for people to have children. And especially from the perspective of Elizabeth, for her to not to be able to bear a child would have been an extremely heavy weight for her to have to carry her whole life. And we're not far from this, you know, because there are things in our culture that also bring us, you know, self-worth. You know, we have different social expectations, cultural expectations, religious expectations, family expectations. We hear stories all the time of my mom and dad really wanted me to be able to do this or take over this or play this game or do whatever, and I just didn't have what it takes. And there's certainly a lot of reasons that we can maybe point to of maybe they didn't try hard enough or they didn't do the right thing or maybe they just weren't gifted enough or whatever. But the thing is, though, is that ultimately we all know a little bit about this tension and this weight that Elizabeth and Zechariah had to live in, this cultural you know, weight of what is wrong with y'all, what's going on. And that's compounded by 
in this society, it was often viewed when something didn't happen in your life that you caused that to happen because of your sin. That seems foreign to us, sort of. I'll kind of get us there in a moment, but what they would have thought in this society is when they looked at Zachariah and Elizabeth, they would have said, oh, well, it was because of something in their past or something in their parents' past, and it's almost like a curse upon their life why they didn't have kids, and that sounds crazy to us, but this was a really common belief, and we can actually see that in like John chapter 9 when Jesus was with his disciples much later on. They were passing by, it says in uh, chapter, uh, verse 1, it says, as he was walking by, he saw a man blind from birth, he being Jesus, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? What a crazy question. Like, to, to walk by somebody who's got a, a, an obvious disability and probably, I mean, like, the dude was blind, not deaf. And they walk by like, whose fault is this? This guy or his parents? Who should we blame? Of course, Jesus works it out, and that's actually very bad theology, but you also got to recognize, though, that this is the context. And so I can imagine, we can, we can positively assume that Zachariah and Elizabeth throughout their life had to deal with the whispers. You know what the whispers are? We know what the whispers are. Those little things that people stop talking and doing whenever you walk into the room. Oh, yeah, you know, they never had kids. Zachariah and Elizabeth are coming over. Nope, nope, just no kids this time, just adults only. We don't want to make them feel bad, but, you know, it's probably their fault. And again, we think that sounds crazy, but it actually isn't because we have similar ideas. We talked about this just kind of recently, that we have certain things in our culture, in Christian culture, where we think, oh, that is a symbol or a sign that God is blessing them and has favor on them. And certainly sometimes God's favor does look visible. But usually, though, that always lines up with what we already as a culture deem to be respectable and acceptable and successful. That is why none of y'all are walking around, and when you see somebody in ragged clothes walking down the street, say, oh, man, God must really love and favor them. None of y'all think that. Now, maybe it's true. Maybe they have, you know, that's, it's because of their sin and decisions they got there. I don't know, but the fact is you don't know either. But I also know that whenever you show up to your friend's house that's much nicer than you, driving a car that's much nicer than you, and they got a Jesus fish on the back, like, mm, man, they're doing something right, right? God loves them. I know we're not saying these things out loud because we kind of know better or hopefully know better, but we think it anyway, don't we? So we have these same kind of things where we, we like to assume that God is putting favor on somebody and, and because, of, you know, because of this person's uh, consequences here, that's why they're going through that situation. But the fact is, that's not what's at play here at all, and that should not be a Christian belief or thought in our world. And the reason we can know this is because the very first thing we actually learn about Zechariah and Elizabeth is this in Luke 1, verse 6. It dispels any of that thought that what they were going through was because of their own doing. It says, both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commandments and requirements of the land. What I want to tell you is Zechariah and Elizabeth were probably better people than you and me and all of us. I just want you to know. I mean, the dude for a living had to be ready to go into the place where God's presence dwelt, and if they did it wrong, they could get killed. Ain't none of y'all stopped at the door today and go, Lord, forgive me. 
for yelling at my kids just 30 seconds ago. Please do not strike me dead as I walk into your house. <laughs> we don't live in that same kind of pressure. We don't live in that same kind of cultural context. So I just want to tell you, they were really good people. It was not because of a sin they had done. It was not because of anything that had been done before them. Actually, when written, writing about them, the scripture says that they were actually righteous in the sight of God and had done everything right. It says, but they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive and both of them were well along in years. Now, the reason I'm taking us down this road is because I, I really think that the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth is a very human story, you know, because I'm going to make some assumptions about most of us in the room, because you're here, you're in church, you're choosing to be here, is that you have an aim, a goal, to try to be a person that's not only just a good person, I hope it's more than that, but a person that follows God. That's why we're here. That's why you choose to sit down for an hour and take this time out of your day. So I think we already can say, it's like, man, that's a, that's a really good idea. We're all putting forth the effort here. That's wonderful. But we can also agree that life's still pretty difficult most of the time. And one of the things that I've learned about from, from pastoring is that while the Christmas seasons, you know, our store makes it look wonderful and great, I love walking to places like TJ Maxx, you know, these places that go like, go to the max, smells like cinnamon. It's like, oh man, Christmas time. But, but the reality is for most of us is that Christmas does not just bring joy, it brings a lot of pain too. Like sick people don't stop getting sick during Christmas time. The pain that maybe you're living with doesn't stop during Christmas time. That wayward child that you're heartbroken about doesn't return home at Christmas time. I mean, if it's a Hallmark movie, it does. It always works out in the end for those people, right? But that's why we go and we binge those is because we're trying to live in this utopia that doesn't actually exist that none of us get to experience, is it? Your marriage doesn't automatically heal at Christmas time. Your broken family dynamics don't get better just automatically at Christmas time. And I know you're like, boy, you are really depressing us. We're all going to TJ Maxx after the service. Dog on it. To get our Christmas cheer back. Grinch should have him up here preaching today. I'm going somewhere. But see, I, I, just, want to, I just want to tell you the reason I'm talking about this is because sometimes life is hard and it's nobody's fault. Like it's so easy in our culture, in our own mind, to blame the shortcomings and the circumstances and the disappointments, and we're going to go a little deeper into this in a moment, but the thing is, what we need to understand is, when we have come to the conclusion that it's not our fault, our natural response is to want to blame somebody. We always want to blame somebody, and sometimes we can blame ourselves, but when we're done blaming ourselves, guess who else you're going to blame? It's either going to be people around you, and ultimately, even as Christians, it's quite easy for us to start blaming God, isn't it? And we can be honest, or you can quietly nod your head. I don't need you to shout amen for that, because I, the reason I know is because I do it too. Because sometimes you're like, I'm doing it to the best of my ability, and it's still hard. And I'm trying to celebrate Christmas in the right way, and it's still tough. So in this series, we are talking, we're calling it, Do You See What I See? And whole idea behind this was to really do a series on perspective, a session of talks on this idea of perspective. And, and last week, the perspective shift that hopefully we made is this idea is that your life, my life, it's not 
just your story. Like, we're not living in your story. Y'all aren't just showing up. Y'all aren't a part of my dream up here that I perpetually have every Sunday at 9 and 10.30, and this is all just about me or it's not all about you. This is actually something much bigger. And what we learned last week was this, is that we are living in God's story, and he is inviting us to take part. And that's a really big deal because what Scripture actually is is God revealing his story to us. And I recently heard a pastor say something that really kind of hit home to me is that, look, you need to view the Bible not being written directly to you. It was written to us. If you think it was written to you, you think it's all about you and this is your story, but it's not. It was written to us collectively. Jesus didn't just come for you. He certainly did come for you, but he came for who? Us. He came for his people, his children. And so that's the first perspective shift that we have to do. And, and so last week we talked about, remember we had the magnifying glass. We said when we make it all about us, though, what we do is we magnify on things that aren't that big of a deal, and we make them big. We make really big things out of really small things, and we miss out on this greater perspective of God's hope, promises, uh, you know, God's hope and promises for our future, not just for you, but for all of us, because we are all part of God's story. That's what Christmas is. It's God's story of coming into the mess, not abandoning his people or his creation to fix a problem he didn't create, because guess who created it? We did. How? By thinking it was about us and our story alone. And so we really finished up with this idea that Christmas is an invitation to see from God's perspective. And this is important to keep in mind as we go through this series, because each week we're going to try to look at a different perspective to shift our minds to hopefully have a truer meaning of what Christmas means. But the perspective that many of us have is, I think, a perspective that Zechariah and Elizabeth would have been very, very familiar with. You know, the thing about any kind of heartbreak, heartache, trouble, is how persistent it is, you know? Like anytime we're having to deal with something, and again, I think it's heightened during Christmas time, that's what I've learned of walking with people is Christmas doesn't just bring joy, it brings a memory of those who've been lost, you know, that table, that chair still empty. Reminds us what we're missing, reminds us so easily of what we don't have, what we wish we could have, but what we can't seem to get. And so what we're going to have to do then is, is come up with what is our response going to be. There's two responses to this. There's going to be a cultural response of how does culture teach us to respond to heartache and hardship. And we need to know because we're going to respond either of one way. So, 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 so the first response is culture's response. And culture's response is, is going to say this. This is what our culture tells you to how to respond to frustrations, difficulty, and heartache in your life. You just have to will yourself to a better place. And this, and this isn't preached anywhere better than on our current social media. And I'm not the old guy trying to batter social media. It's just that that's where most of the dialogue that you and I are having. The church is not where all of the dialogue is happening anymore in communities. Every single one of us, when we go home, you're pulling up some social media app, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, whatever you're doing, and you're watching the thoughts develop of our culture at a lightning fast pace. And so what we now have is we have a culture of this 
these, these people, they're called influencers, right? And really, they're just all being paid to say stuff that, that people want to really sell us at because at the end of the day, money rules the world, right? Am I right? Am I right? But ultimately, though, what they've done is they do a very good job. Some of you are actually really good at this. And you curate a perfect perspective of what your life is, but it's what? Fake. Because you know what a camera is really good at? The whole room can be dirty, but one corner, as long as you show that one corner, the whole room looks clean, isn't it? Isn't it? That's just how it, that's how it is. And look, I'm not bashing on that. We've been technically doing that for ages. I mean, that's why people talk about, like, churches are full of fake hypocrites, right? Why? Because we know how to put on a front when we show up to church. And the fact is, is that in reality, all of us are pretty messed up. And I understand the tension of this because nobody wants to hear the whole vomit of what's going on in your life every time you say, hello, how are you doing, right? You have that friend? You know who that person is? If you don't have that friend, it might be you, by the way. I don't know. That might be a little bit of a wake-up call for you here. It's like, hey, how are you doing? Oh, let me tell you. are like, I got to go. <laughs> Somebody's calling me on my cell phone, you know? Let me get out of here, right? And I get it. I get it. I get it. I don't want that either when I'm shopping at TJ Maxx and I'm trying to pretend that everything's okay. I'm going to TJ Maxx after this. I'm buying like a candle, a mug, anyway, all that pretty stuff, right? But here's, here's the point. Here's the point. We do need to have spaces of that because we are often going through some really, really difficult stuff. And so what culture's response is, it says, it's all up to you. Why can't you get it together? Everybody else online seems to have it pretty well together. Their marriage looks all right. Their kids are doing okay. They don't have snotty noses and messed up rooms, right? Look at the nice cars that they're driving. Like, look at all these comparison, 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 right? And so society is trying to tell you, if you want it to be better, you got to pick yourself up. you just got to will it to happen. Well, guess what? If it was that easy, we'd all be fixed. Because sometimes you can't will yourself to feel better. You can't will somebody else to heal. You can't will that person to love you more or to stop doing destructive things in their life. That's not the message of Christmas at all. Thinking positive, good vibes, put it back out into the universe and you'll get it back. It's baloney. Sounds good. But what's at the root of it? Well, the root of it is it's all about me. My story, what I want, and how I can achieve what I desire. But here's a powerful truth that Scripture teaches us from Genesis onwards. That if you want to take control of your own story, you must also take responsibility for the outcome. And that's not good news. And, and listen to me, young people, for just a moment. Because I realized that all of a sudden, one day I woke up and I'm the old guy I remember listening to when I was your age thinking, bro, you don't know. You say TikTok weird. I probably do, and I don't care. But I do want to tell you something. So many of the adults in this room are still paying for the mistakes that they made when they were your age. Amen. How you think and what you do matters. And, and if you listen to this cultural narrative that it's up to you, and it's up to you to make your way, to figure yourself out, to tell yourself who you are, who you can love, all of these different things like that, you take the responsibility of your life onto yourself, and it's something you're not built to handle. None of us are. Absolutely none of us are. That is anti-story of God from the Bible. It's not a Christian message at all. Because we weren't built to handle that. We weren't built to, to pick ourselves up from our bootstraps and just make it happen. 
But the Christian response is different. The Christian response, but the Christian response is not easy. It's actually quite scary. Like it's, it's better long term, but it's scary up front. The Christian response is this. I am willing to be a part of God's story no matter what form that may take. That's the scary part. The first part is, is what we all come in here and we do a lot of times at church. I'm willing to be a part of God's story. God, do whatever you want to do as long as I'm driving the car I want to. And I have all the kids I want to. And I have as many rooms in my house as I want to with an open concept and countertops that I like. Right? You know, whatever. Like, insert your dream there, bro. Like, whatever it is. You know, on a beach, somewhere, God's with me, all of those things. That's fine. But we never want to pray the second part, whatever form that may take. Like, we always want to ask God to move the mountain. But what if that mountain actually means that part of you moving it is not God healing you, but you overcoming the mountain despite your disability or pain? Because that's, that's, the, that's the Christian message, right? And so we're looking at a, at a couple here who has, the, who has remained faithful throughout their entire life to such a point now that they're old. And if they had listened to the cultural narrative, they would have taken it into their own hands or they would have decided that living for this God who won't give me what I want is pointless, boring, and bland. I'm going to do it my own way. Why didn't Zachariah, obviously a smart guy, goes to get, you know, rises to this, this level of, of, of being a priest. He could have went to the private sector, probably made a lot more money. Done whatever he wanted, you know, whatever he wanted to. Why did they even stay together? She wasn't giving him a child. Zachariah had to be punished because she couldn't give him a child? But culture says it's your responsibility to take your life into your own hands and to make sure you build your own version of happiness. That's devastating. So I'm willing to be part of God's story no matter what that takes. Now, that's scary in two specific ways. I want to share both of those because I want to make sure that we're very, very... uh, clear today, because what, what I'm throwing at you is heavy and big, but man, it will change your life. Scary in two ways. The first way is this. It means that I am no longer in control. I'm not in control, and now I know it. See, <laughs> here's, here's the irony. You're not in control, just most of us don't know it yet. Like, have you ever, uh, you ever been in a car that started hydroplaning? Hopefully, maybe you have not, but I, but I have been. It's terrifying. Because what happens is, is you, you go from being what you assume to be in control, right? I'm good. I turn it to the left. It turns to the left, right? The car does everything it's supposed to do. But then when you start hydroplaning, you turn it to the left. What does the car do? Not go to the left anymore. That law is broken. When you hit the brakes, the car stops normally, right? When you're hydroplaning, what does the brakes do? Not stop the car, right? All of a sudden, everything that was according to design is now upside down. And that's actually what life then feels like. That's why all of a sudden, when chaos or calamity hits your life, it just feels like everything that was a rule is now an upside down rule. It doesn't matter anymore. And so that's what happens. It's like we're all hydroplaning. So the fact is, is when you start to live your life in God's story, from God's perspective, you actually start to realize, I'm not in control of this thing. And that's good news. That's good news because the fact is, look, in the analogy... The principle isn't, well, I'll just drive around the, the water. No, it's more like driving when it's cold, and what do they call it? They call it black ice, right? Why is black ice dangerous? Because you can't see it. See, because we think we're in control, it's like, I'll avoid the chaos. It's the problem. You can't see it. You can't see it coming. I'm not trying to scare you. It's like, man, this would have been a Halloween message. What are you doing? Hold on. It means that I'm not in control, and I know it. See, our desire for control is one of the most profound and harmful issues we face. Now, what is, 
what has really prompted this message, because it actually wasn't exactly what I had in mind when I was putting this together a few weeks ago and praying through it. But, but where this is coming from, it's just in the last several months, you know, I, I have, and I'm calling it an opportunity because it is. As a pastor, I get to walk along with people usually when their life is in chaos. And I tend to like to find patterns and things. And one of the patterns that I have really seen and that I feel like God is allowing me to see is that so many of the situations, not all, again, not all, because some things just sometimes happen. Life, life is hard, and sometimes hard things just happen. But how we respond in those moments, usually it is a response of trying to regain some form of control. And it comes out in a lot of ways. It might be trying to control the people around you. Or sometimes that form of control is to completely throw off all responsibilities and to completely blow your life up and everyone in it. Or, or maybe it's to, to turn to something or a thing or a person that, that isn't good for you but is anything to maybe ease the pain or you know, ease the trouble that's going on. But whatever it is, actually all of, all of those things, regardless of what form it takes, is a way to try to take control. It's not surrender. And I'm just constantly drawn back in this story to Zechariah and Elizabeth, their response to their hearts not getting what they ultimately wanted, which was a child. They didn't do any of those things. They continued to just surrender their lives to God. They just stayed faithful. It wasn't attractive. It wasn't edgy. But it was the best thing they could have done. See, the, the second, second way this is scary, the second way of realizing that we're out of control is it means that I'm surrendering my life to God, even the really difficult, hurtful, and disappointing parts. It means that becoming a follower of Jesus that says, I will go where you go. You go through the fire, Lord, I will follow you there. Because I know that you're with me in that fire. If you go towards the stormy ocean, I will go. If you ask me to swim, I will swim. To stay, I will stay. To speak, I will speak. And to hush, I will hush. I surrender my life to God. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they modeled this for us because they didn't serve God only when it was convenient. I think that's maybe what scares me the most for most of us. Is I just know a lot of my faith is based on my personal convenience. And that shouldn't surprise any of us because everything in our life is based on our personal convenience. But that's not what builds strong people, you know. I do believe that that's why some previous generations have seen God move in more powerful ways. I've always been drawn to, in my study, the, the great revivals of the last two or three hundred years. And you read what people were going through. Man, like, life was hard. Like, I know life is still hard. But it's not that hard in comparison, you know? Like, I think it's raining outside. None of y'all are walking home. Life's not that hard. Like, none of y'all have a horse that you're going to have to brush down when you get back home, right? 
Now, your dad may make you wash the car. I mean, I don't know. Maybe you have that kind of dad. I'm just like, there's so many different examples, though, that we can say that like life is just so much more convenient today, and thus we have tried to model a faith that is based on that convenience. But that's not the kind of people that God chooses to use. So here's the point of all of this. I'm calling this message, Do You See God Preparing a Way? Do you see God preparing a way? Because see, the struggle that you face right now, and you don't have to think hard to think about it, you know. You can look at it, maybe you see it as a punishment. Maybe you're thinking back like the disciples did. <laughs> I said this first service. Uh, you know, one of the things I prayed about, and I'm serious about this, it's a joke now, but I, I, I really did. I so desperately wanted to be six foot tall when I was in high school. 14, 15, obviously if any of you talk to me, I am not six foot tall. Actually still slightly shorter than my father, which is why I pull my hair up. It adds about an inch or two. And so the, so the answer is like, the silly answer is to say, well who's, 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 who's sin is that? Who, 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 and who do, I, who do I place that disappointment on, you know? And, you know? Is it a punishment for me? Did my daddy sin? Did I sin? No. We know now we don't think those ways a lot of times because, you know, we know genetics and all those things. But the fact still is we go there a lot that we think it's somebody else's fault. So it can either be a punishment, it's a curse, maybe it's a failure on my part, failure on God's part, somebody dropped the ball, but the Christian way of thinking it is totally different. And what Zachariah and Elizabeth did is instead they allowed God to use it as an opportunity. Do you see God preparing a way, not when life is easy, but when life is hard? Those are the moments that God will use. Because I could just imagine as the Spirit of God is looking over the earth and he's trying to look, say, I'm about to do and unleash the greatest miracle on mankind. I'm going to go down myself in the form of a baby. I have the woman picked out, but I need someone who will go and prepare the way. And who can I move in? Let me look. Who has been faithful to me even when it wasn't easy? There they are. And one of the beautiful things I loved about that video that the actress portraying Elizabeth, she, she made a comment that I've never thought about before. She said, I saw, I, I now see myself having to help, help Mary just how my son is going to go and prepare the way for her son, our Lord. And I just think that's so, again, the, guys, these are real stories. These are not just moral lessons. These are real people that God chose to use. And you can step into the same story. God can use you, the same God. But I just get this, I don't know, this kind of emotional moment in my mind when I think of, here's young Mary, now a social outsider. Joseph wanted to to leave her, an angel literally had to go to him and say, don't you think about it. I mean, think about that. It was obviously so severe that God was like, you better go down there. <laughs> you need to have a talk. And so here they now, they were on the outskirts of society looking for a safe place as in her womb grew the hope of everyone that has ever existed, including 
And who does God in his grace, wisdom, and mercy send her to? He sends her to another pregnant woman, which was really smart. She would understand what she was going through. But she sent her to Elizabeth. Why? Because Elizabeth knew what it felt like to be on the outside and how to trust God despite that. And I just see this beautiful working of God's spirit. I think Elizabeth, because she allowed God to use her pain, could say, thank you, God, for not answering my prayer 20 years ago and preparing a way for somebody else through me now. So when I say, do you see God preparing a way? My question is, are you willing to let God use that very thing that you might be blaming God for? Do you have the courage to surrender? Say, God, every time I try to control this stuff, when I try to control me and my mess, I have a pretty good history of wrecking it even more. But when you give it over to the Lord, this is what's so beautiful about the kingdom of God. Because again, it's not your story. It's not your story. But when you step into God's story, God invites you to be a part of it, to be a blessing to someone else. Imagine our world, your family, your circle, our church and this community it was full of a bunch of people that didn't go around complaining and blaming and controlling and contriving and instead a bunch of surrendered believers who said I'm allowing God to use my pain to prepare the way for somebody else after me so that they can hold on like I have when they're going through the same When God prepares a way, it's always to something better, even if the way to get there is difficult. So the end of the story, I just think this is a beautiful place to, to stop. As we heard in the video, Zachariah couldn't speak throughout the whole pregnancy. Probably the best pregnancy ever. He couldn't speak the whole time. She, I mean, all, you know, he just had to, he just, anyway, I just think that was like, what a blessing to old Elizabeth. A silent husband and the baby she's always prayed for. Man, <laughs> God answers a prayer sometimes, doesn't he? Wow. But the first thing that he does speak is when you read in Luke 1, it's a prophecy that Ezekiel speaks over his son. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but verse 76 says, And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. I love this next line. To give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sin. Instead of looking at your trial as a curse, look at it as a blessing for knowledge and the ability to go before someone else. You want to live a big life? Stop living a life that's all. Because our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high, will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death. Who is he talking about now? Not Jesus. To guide our feet 
the way of peace. You guys will stand with me. I just want to close in prayer. Let me leave, with, leave you with this thought. I want, you to, I want you to hear the whisper of the Lord on your life as he whispers, do you see what I see? Do you see me trying to prepare you to make a way, not only for you, but for those around you? Will you be the leader I Father, I thank you so much for these moments where we can look back on faithful believers who have gone before us. Help us to not let this just go into our mind and dump it at the door, but Lord, pray that we dwell on these things, that we hold them close. Lord, we lift up to you all of the struggles and the situations that we are going in. And we know that real Christmas, not, not the festivities of Christmas, but real Christmas, Jesus, one day all of these things will be overcome. All of our tears will be wiped away. There is great hope this Christmas because your son Jesus is alive and well and ruling from his throne in heaven and help us to be the agents of change that you have called us to be. We surrender it to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray.